see my little title page here. And then we're going to read the section of Scripture together. Uh, not like out loud. It's not going to be one of those weird things, right? But just read it with me. And, um, and then uh, I'm going to catch us up to where we are in the book of Hebrews so that we can go into it with a right understanding of where the author is taking his original audience so that we can be sure that whatever we understand, we understand in light of exactly how the original audience was supposed to understand it. I hope that makes sense. Um, but the, the point that I wanted to get to today, especially, there's several points in this passage, but the one point that I wanted to make sure that we understand uh, from this particular passage is that we are running this race as followers of Jesus together. It is a group effort. We don't depend on our slowest follower and that sort of thing, uh, but in that sort of sense, but, but we do, we are tasked by Scripture with looking out for each other. And this particular passage points out to that, uh, points that out in a way that the opening verses of chapter 12, <clears throat> 12, even though it is a call to pursue holiness, and arguably the whole book, the whole letter, is an exhortation to pursue holiness. Um, in this particular section, he's going to highlight I think, our responsibility to each other. And so I want to say that right from the beginning, in case anybody nods off, you've gotten the point already, or at least a big part of it. So let's look at the text, we'll pray, and then we'll move into how we ought to understand the text. Starting in verse 12, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the, bless, the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. When I read that and thought about you guys who hadn't been with us, I thought, yeah, this is the question that I would ask too. If I just read this cold and didn't read all what came before, I'd say, what am I supposed to make of all this? Right? Feeble arms and legs, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Right, so um, I will encourage you as I encourage every single person I've ever sat down to read the Bible with, first, before you attempt to read the Bible and understand it, pray, right? Because I don't care what your education looks like, um, whether it's high and you assume that you're going to understand things right off the bat, or whether it's low and you assume that you can't understand things. We serve a God who makes us able. There is nobody who is able to do anything apart from the grace of God. Paul even says, he's like, whatever I am, I'm, I am by the grace of God. And, and we look at Paul and we're like, Ooh, there's a hero. But he was only able to do and say the things he was able to do and say because of the grace of God in his life. So let's pray. And then let's see what God will make of this. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us the objective truth. Because aside from what any of us think, and aside from the culture in which we live, the time in which we live, your word is a timeless truth. And your word, you, through your word, reveal yourself to us. You have revealed Jesus fully and finally. 
You have revealed yourself fully and finally through Jesus. And we have all of the testimony that we need here in the word for life and godliness. But we depend on you to lead us. We depend on you to enlighten our hearts. We depend on you to renew our minds. We depend on you to give us the strength to obey the commands of Scripture. So, Father, be present with us. We are so thankful that you are present with us. And we ask you to lead us and guide us and help us to understand this passage, help us to grow in our understanding of the whole word, and help us to live the lives that bring honor and glory and praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what do we make of all this? Well, let's start with an overview. Um, I didn't give you the chapter notice here. I, I do in the exhortation uh, list after this. But first in chapter 1, the opening few verses, we see that Jesus is a complete and a final divine revelation of himself through a person and the work of Jesus Christ. We see right in those opening verses that God has a, accomplished a perfect, a complete purity or purification for sins. We see that he's a greater, more full word than the words that came through the prophets because he's a complete picture. We see that Jesus is greater than the angels. We see that Jesus is the perfect human representative. Thinking like Romans 5, right? Adam was a representative. He's our, our spiritual head until we know Christ. And then Christ is our head. And he's a perfect represent, representative for us. We see that he's greater than Moses. He's a greater leader, a greater judge than Moses. We see that he leads us into a greater Sabbath rest. Joshua wasn't able to give them rest, but we have true and lasting eternal rest in Jesus Christ. He's a greater priest. Aaron was a pretty good priest, but he wasn't perfect. There's plenty of good priests along the line, but they all died. They were not able to fulfill their mission. Jesus lives forever, so he can always intercede for us in the presence of God, and he's always rightly related to God. So he's a perfect high priest. He accomplishes a perfect ministry and carries it out. Not only did he make a complete sacrifice, but he always makes right intercession for us. He offered a once-for-all sacrifice of a better blood than any goat or bull or anything like that. And his blood is the seal of a new covenant that we have with God that will never diminish. It will never be replaced. And has better promises than the old covenant. There's the truth, right? That's the truth. That's the doctrine that we need to know. Not all of it from Hebrews, but that's a good portion of it. I hear some exhortations. Here's some warnings as well. So since we have a better word, pay closer attention. Since Jesus is our perfect leader, perfect judge, perfect ruler, perfect king, all that, fix your thoughts on him. Since this is a greater gospel, a greater truth, watch out that you don't turn away. Since this is a better rest, you're not fighting against earthly enemies as Joshua and the people were in order to enter that rest. You're fighting against principalities and powers, so make every effort to enter that rest. Let's press on toward maturity. 
And then in chapter 10, draw near to God. Hold fast to the gospel of His Son. Hold fast to your Savior Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the faith that God has given to you. And exhort each other. Encourage each other. And 12, 1 through 4, we saw that we have to persevere in this race of holiness. He gives us this great metaphor of running a race. And he lets us know this is about pursuing holiness. And then in 5 through 11, we saw that along the way, added to the difficulty of pursuing holiness, that striving and that struggling and that marathon, that grueling agony of a race that we're called to live, along with that is also suffering that comes about as a discipline, as discipline from the Lord. We talked about that last week, about what that discipline looks like. Remember, it's not just, not just punitive punishment. It's not just punishment. Remember that the discipline of the Lord for His people is loving and caring and discipline that's aimed at growth. The retributive justice that God pours out on people in hell is not what we experience as children of God on earth. It's not the same thing. Those of us who are as children, even when we experience corrective punishment, it's not the same idea as the retribution that people face in hell. Because Jesus took all the retributive justice of God. He took all the wrath of God for us. So it's good that we don't get that confused. But at the same time, discipline is uncomfortable. So when he talks about, especially in 10 through 12 here so far, one of the things that's really constant is the difficulty of this task. So that when he says, strengthen the feeble arms and the weak knees, so that the lame isn't disabled, but rather healed. We hear that in the context of life as a follower of Jesus on this pursuit of holiness is difficult. It's not easy. Nobody's saying it's easy. I think I said this last week. If I didn't, I'll say it again now, or for the first time now. Nobody is saying that the trials that God allows in your life, even if they're loving and good and for a good purpose, nobody's saying they're easy, so suck it up. Nobody's saying, come on, it's not a big deal, just a little suffering. Nobody's saying that. And if you are saying that, please re-examine your theology and how you encourage people because you may not be a son of encouragement and you should probably practice a little bit. He says, strengthen... I don't think it's a huge point, but the, the, you know, the, the text says the feeble arms and weak knees. Um, and I think he's hinting at something, and I think that we need to uh, turn on our Baptist air conditioning and find out what he's hinting at. Uh, that's what R.C. Sproul calls it when he tells you to turn to a passage. I like it. Um, in Isaiah 35 is where the author of Hebrews quotes from. Somebody's thinking, it's cool enough in here, we don't need air conditioning. So in Isaiah 35, you know know Isaiah is just some repeated themes, right? He's talking about judgment that's coming because of disobedience. But he's also talking about a time of refreshing, a time uh, of restoration that he's going to bring about in the future through, he reveals uh, in 52 and 53, 
through the work of the suffering servant, through the work of Jesus Christ, through the work of the Redeemer, right? He says all throughout, I'm your Redeemer, there isn't anybody else. I'm your Savior, there's no one else. I'm the Holy One, there's nobody other beside me. And in Isaiah 35, is a particularly encouraging passage to people who are either coming into suffering uh, or they have already experienced in the middle of it, and he says, or he's looking forward to it, and and he talks about a time of great restoration. And he says in, in the opening verses, I'm going to read the whole thing because it's only 10 verses. He says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. He's talking about a time of refreshment from the Lord. They've, they've undergone and they will undergo times of suffering because of their sin. But there's also behind that times of suffering, what's going to happen, the effect of that suffering um, in Isaiah's day and really honestly through anybody who is reading Isaiah until the coming of Jesus and even people who have been reading Isaiah since that time. They look and they see that after the the punishments that God would allow on his people Israel through all the history of the Israelites were meant to turn people back to the Lord. And there was always restoration behind coming after the suffering. And it's this picture of how even creation is going to be rejoicing and flourishing. And so in verse 3, he says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, and the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Well, he's talking about a couple of things here. He's talking about renewal and restoration in the physical, earthly sense that was going to come and periodically came after God disciplined his people. But in the fullest sense, he's talking about what only Jesus Christ would do. So as he tells them to strengthen the feeble hands and steady the knees that give way, he says, say to those with fearful hearts. So when when the author of Hebrews quotes this, he's not just talking about themselves individually, personally. He's saying "You're you're a gathering of people made holy to the Lord and this journey that you're on, this highway of holiness, is hard. This marathon that you're living as you seek to live out the commands of Scripture and give honor to God and actually see the the, the sanctification process that God's working out happen day to day as you bend your will to the Father's will in order to give Him glory, in order to lift high the name of Jesus. There are going to be people who are amongst you that are struggling Um, we talked a lot about racing a couple of weeks ago, running. I don't know how many people are runners. Um, I wonder uh, how many of you have ever run in a formation before, run with a lot of other people. Anybody, military or police or anything like that, have run in a formation? 
does something interesting about running in a formation with a bunch of other people. You have people all around you who are counting on you to keep pace. You have a person behind you who's watching you. And they're counting on you keeping pace so that your tripping up doesn't cause them to trip up. And there's people on your left and right they are going to look to you to orient themselves while other people are looking at them, right? The group is dependent on each other. And when one person stumbles, it has a huge rippling effect. But the beauty of it as well is that one person starts to lag and he's got voices all around him, three or four or five in proximity, depending on his position, who's saying, come on, man, just keep it up. No, 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 don't, don't put your head down. Don't drop your arms. You need the swing of your arms to keep going. You have to purposely keep placing one foot in front of the other and kicking behind you to keep your momentum. You depend on each other. And that's what he's saying here in Isaiah 35. You're going to have to wait a little while. You're going to have to suffer a little while. It's not yet. I mean, think about Isaiah. Isaiah's writing around 750 years before the coming of Christ. Were the people going to have to wait a while for the fulfillment of this passage? Yes. They weren't going to see it with their eyes, not in this life. So they were going to have to work hard, and there were going to be other people who were weak and needed encouragement. And what's the content of the encouragement in Isaiah 35? He says, this is what you should say to those with fearful hearts. Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. And then he talks about the opening of the eyes of the blind and the lame who are going to leap like deer and so forth. How can you read this and not think about the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ? This was the point that he made when, when, um, when uh, John the Baptist sent somebody to question if he was the one they were waiting for, if there was somebody else. He's like, man, the, the eyes of the blind are open. The deaf are speaking, or hearing. The mute are speaking. The lame have gotten up. They're walking around. And you see what's happening? The content is that for them, at that day in Isaiah and all the people until the coming of Christ, was God's going to come. He will come for divine retribution and He will come to save you, His people. We have the benefit of that already happening. And so did this, uh, the writer of Hebrews. He says, your God has come. This is how I want you to encourage people who, are, who are, have got feeble hands and weak knees and they're slowing down and their arms are slowing down. They're dropping their arms. They're running like they can barely hang on. Your God has come. He has accomplished salvation for you. Jesus Christ has done everything. So run. Pick up the pace. Pick up your feet. Swing your arms. Get into the groove of this run. Stop being so tired. He's done it all. The content of our encouragement is that God has come and accomplished salvation for His people in the life and in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's come. And He will come again. He'll come again for divine retribution. And he will come again to fulfill all of his promises to you. That is the encouragement of this passage. There might be an element of, you know, kind of suck it up. But the heart of this is, 
Jesus Christ has accomplished all. So keep running. Pick up the pace. Other people are depending on you. Or a couple of people with their arms around them so that they can keep pace. Because we love each other. Because of the love that's been poured out in our hearts through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Make level paths for your feet. Get that air conditioner going. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, really all of Proverbs is the advice of a father to a son. Godly man who wants his godly kids to listen. In chapter 4, we see the same thing. He opens the same way, he says, or a similar way. He says, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. I, too, was a son of my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Now, if we assume this is Solomon, who's talking about the words of David, David is not just talking about his own words. He's talking about the word of God. Later on in the chapter, we see, I'm going to highlight a couple of these verses for us. Uh, He says, uh, get wisdom and get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. He says in verse uh, 11, I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. He says in um, verse 14, don't set, on a path, don't set your foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of the evildoer. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Um, he talks about uh, in verse 18, the path of righteousness is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. And then finally, um, in verse, I'm going to start in verse 25, he says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet. Be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. You know, give careful thought. He, in, in verse 26, the language there is um, make straight paths for your feet. That's what he's talking about. So what's the straight path? What's this straight path that we're supposed to be working on? As we're encouraging each other, as we're running together, as we're trying to keep each other from stumbling, as we're trying not to stumble so we don't cause anybody else to stumble, as we're, as we're pursuing holiness in light of the truths of the word, in light of the truths specifically of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those paths, that path, that level path, is obedience to the instruction of the Lord. It's really simple. You know the will of God. It's right here in his word. The will of God is your sanctification. Sanctification happens through obedience. This is for the believer, obviously. This is not, you don't get, you don't get sanctified by obeying. You become sanctified. That process that you enter in when you give your life to God through Jesus Christ, that's the process. That's the beginning of the race. The ultimate destination is holiness, Christ-likeness. But the path is obedience. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Don't really need to go anywhere for that one, do we? Right? Need to live at at peace with everyone. But why? 
right? What's the purpose? Well, think inside of the church and think outside of the church, okay? Inside of the church. If I'm squabbling with the people running next to me, then we're, we're not going to be able to help each other like we can if we're at peace. And I love this, this particular one where he says, make every effort. The original language is like chase down. Like if you're trying to catch something. Like a hunter, his prey. Or a person pursuing an enemy. Hunt it down. That's why when it, we hear it, it's just make every effort. I think it's a great way for us to understand this. You need to know that peace with everyone is a high priority objective for you as a follower of Jesus on this road to righteousness, on this highway of holiness. Because as you pursue peace with your brothers and sisters, your mutual encouragement will grow. Your ability to be encouraged by and encourage others will be multiplied. And as you pursue peace in the world, you know, as Paul says elsewhere, I think it's Galatians, but I can't remember, in as much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. Now, now, as a follower of Jesus, trying to grow in holiness, because we follow Jesus, so as we grow in holiness and we meet people who are like, man, you're, you're a good person. I mean, like, that was a really nice thing you're doing. You're like, look, I'm just trying to live out the truth of the Bible. The Bible teaches me that Jesus Christ alone is good. He's the only man who's ever lived without sin. And because he died as a sacrificial atonement for anyone who would put their faith and trust in him, and I've put my faith and trust in him, now I can live a life that pleases God. I want to live my life as holy as possible so that I can tell other people about Jesus. You see, as you're pursuing peace with other people outside of the church, for the sake of the gospel, you are giving them no reason, no actual reason, to look down on the gospel or to belittle the things that you, that you teach. And you're giving them every reason to see the reality of the gospel lived out in your life and just maybe they will put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ as well. But by pursuing peace with our brothers and sisters and peace in the world that we live in, for the sake of the gospel, we can have the best race that we could imagine. Or at least the best of what God has ordained for us. So make every effort to live at peace with others in the church and out. And to be holy. I'm going to look at a couple of things here. I'm not going to look at a bunch of other passages. Um, But there's, I think, probably three possibilities here. Um, One, I think, is most likely. That's the last one. The middle one, I don't know. Maybe I kind of see it. The first one, I'm not so sure. So, um, typically, this uh, this passage, this particular verse, is interpreted in one of three ways. Uh, Typically, people go right back to the gospel. I say typically, I don't know how percentage-wise that, that works. But people do like to go right back to the gospel. And I, I, I admit, I love going right back to the gospel too. But in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, when he talks about that Jesus is our holiness and our wisdom and our righteousness, what he's doing is he's talking to people who, who weren't anybody when they came to Christ. And Paul is reminding them that all of their wisdom, even though they weren't wise, 
and all of their wealth, even though they weren't rich, all of their understanding and their knowledge, everything that they have is in Christ. Makes the same point in Colossians 1 in a little bit more concise way. Jesus is our holiness, and that's true. But I don't think that's what he means in this passage. Because do you need to pursue with all your might something that's already been done for you? No, you need to believe it, and you need to live it out. Trust in it. Secondly, um, and I saw this in John MacArthur's commentary, hadn't considered it before, thought I'd present it, not sure if that's part of it or not, but it may be. And he says, as believers pursue holiness, we display the Lord Jesus to others. Right? So he says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So he's saying, if you're pursuing holiness, then other people will see the Lord Jesus in you. That's the way John MacArthur takes it. And I kind of like it. I'm not sure that's really the intent here in the passage. Because again, we're talking about this pursuit of holiness that we have to engage in. And so the way I would look at this um, is the pursuit of holiness is a defining mark of a Christian. And there's a couple of different places where we can see that, um, but I'm going to look to 1 John, and I think that's one of the clearer ones, and we've already read it before, so I'm going to go ahead and look to 1 John and read that passage to you. Uh, it starts at the end of chapter 2 in verse 28. John writes, he says, Now, dear children, continue in him, that is Christ, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. You see, it's, it's contact, real spiritual acceptance, trusting in Jesus Christ. It's contact with him. It's experience his grace and, experiencing his grace and salvation that gives us the desire to pursue holiness. And so I think that's the best way to understand this passage. In much the same way that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, if you don't show mercy, you're not going to be shown mercy. It's not in the sense of, okay, here's how to be accepted by God. It's if you have been accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you will be merciful. And the same thing here. If you've been made holy by the Holy One of God, then you will pursue holiness. It will be a defining mark of your life. And then he says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now again, we've got to turn on the air conditioner here because we need to understand what does he mean by this stuff? Right? We can say, oh, bitterness is bad. Yeah, well, okay, bitterness is bad. That's true, but is that what he means here? This see to it, the verb here is really interesting to me. Maybe it'll be interesting to you. Maybe not. Maybe just doze off if it's not. But it comes from the same root as the idea of overseer. Like in 1 Peter, when he says, you know, you be overseers, 
of other people, right? You're watching out for each other. That's where this comes from. It's from the same root. Watch out over each other. So he says, see to it, that maybe not give us the right understanding. See to it that nobody among you. In other words, look left and look right and make sure nobody's missing the grace of God. Watch out that there's no bitter root that rises up to defile others. You need to watch out over each other. So when we look at this bitter root, we define, like, what is this bitter root? I think the first indication we see, and probably the clearest, is in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Um, And in Deuteronomy chapter 29, uh, you'll know this if you went through Deuteronomy with us a couple years ago. If not, well, I'm going to remind you. Uh, In the end of Deuteronomy, he's sort of bringing them back around in the blessings and curses section. He's not only talking about what's going to happen to them as they obey, the commands of God, but he's also going to talk about what's going to happen to them as they disobey. And what God does through the end of Deuteronomy is he lays out a pretty cool history to come for the people of Israel. He talks about their falling away. He talks about their victory of their enemies. He talks about their ultimately being uh, sent into captivity, and he talks about a renewal. And then he talks about a time in chapter 30 where he's actually going to circumcise their hearts himself. Up until that point, he said, you need to circumcise your hearts. In chapter 30, he says, I'm going to circumcise your hearts. And of course, the author of Hebrews has already taken us there. But in chapter 29, he says, you guys, uh, that's my version, uh, verse 16, you yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there is no man or woman clan or tribe among you today, whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those other nations. Make sure that no root among you that produces such bitter poison. So he says this root of bitterness is somebody who comes along from the people and turns people away from right worship of God. Here it's through idolatry. You know, in the modern world, we don't see as much like people bowing down to stones and statues, but we do see people worshiping anything but God. And those people come time to time in the churches. And there are all sorts of warnings by the apostles about false teachers who would arise and would turn people away. And the way that works out is false teaching and and licentious living. Truth that's not true and lifestyle that does not please God. And so this root that causes bitterness is a person who is an unbeliever living as a believer within the church and turning people away from true faith by the life they live and the words they teach. That's why Paul told Timothy, watch out for your doctrine and the way you live. So see to it. Now, falling short of the grace of God, um, I would just urge you to look at Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to go ahead and turn there anyway. In Galatians chapter 5, he starts out this way. He says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to it all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace.
falling away from grace in this context and in the context of Galatians 5 is falling into a ditch that's along that side on that highway to holiness. We see this all the time in Scripture that there's this tension between two things. And somehow or another, we don't like to hold tensions. So we try to put them together. And we always end up with heresy when we pull these tensions together. You always end up teaching wrong theology or showing wrong living when you do that. As you stay in the road, stay in that gospel mindset, stay in the middle of that highway of holiness. Yes, working toward living rightly and pleasing God, but at the same time holding, holding fast that other truth that even though you fall short every single day, God has loved you more than he could possibly ever show love through the death of his son on your behalf. And you're loved and accepted because he is acceptable and lovely. Not because of you, yourself. The level path of obedience has dishes on either side. So watch out that nobody among you falls into legalism, trying to earn your salvation, or licentiousness, thinking that somehow your salvation means you can do whatever you want. Finally, and probably one of the easiest parts to look through, uh, is 16 um, and 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold out his, sold, sorry, sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Now, if you want to look at the story, you could go back to Genesis like 25 through, I don't know, 28 or so. But you'll see the whole story there. But what happens is, is that Esau comes in, he's hungry. Jacob has some food. And Jacob says, yeah, sell me your birthright. I'll give you some food. And you, you think, what is this story all about? Well, we need to kind of, in, in, in Genesis, if you don't realize what's going on, Esau is the oldest son. Abraham passed down the news of the blessing that God had made to him, or the promise that God had made to him, to his son Isaac. Isaac understood that, and he passed those things on to his kids. And God himself spoke to Isaac as well, and later we find to Jacob. It's not just the idea of a double portion of our earthly inheritance that, that Esau spurned. In Hebrew tradition, in Jewish tradition, and I think they're right, Esau was godless. He did not pay attention to the promises of God those future blessings of promise that God had initially given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He didn't regard them. He despised them. We see that in the way he chose his wives. We see that in the way he easily let go of the birthright. He was godless. This passage stands in contrast to 11.25, where as an example of faith, he shows us Moses who is able to look past the fleeting pleasure of sin and choose rather to be persecuted along with the people of God. He uses uh, Moses as a positive example. And he uses Esau as a negative one. And what he says is that deliberate sin indicates a rejection of the grace of God, a disbelief in God and his word and the promises of the gospel. Deliberate sin, choosing now the fleeting pleasure of sin, indicates a heart that disbelieves in the promises of God. 
Now, I'm not saying that every time you deliberately sin, you show that you're an unbeliever. But if you take a casual attitude toward deliberate sin, watch out. You are on the edge of the fire. And you need to step back. I don't at all want to soft-pedal the warnings of Scripture because I can't see your heart. And I can't even trust my own heart most days. Deliberate sin is an indication of rejection of the grace of God and a disbelief in His promises. So how should we run? I'm going to pull this together with just some kind of attitudes that we should have, some things that we ought to grow in that we see in this text. Number one is a gospel focus. Because you need a gospel focus for every, everything that he calls us to do here in Hebrews. You need a gospel focus in order to work hard when their way is rough, when you are tired, when you want to let your arms droop, when you want to slack and stumble because you're tired when you want to sit down. You need to keep a gospel focus. When you see people who are tired next to you, keep a gospel focus so you can preach the gospel to them. So that you can remind them of the goodness of God. And and encourage them when they're tired. Diligence. Every aspect of your life requires an earnest and a sincere care for what you're doing, what you're saying, the choices that you make. You must be diligent. Diligence is, a, is, a, is a, an earnest, a sincere care that you take in doing anything. Work with diligence in all that you do, as unto the Lord. Perseverance made this point over and over and over again. In chapter 10, he says, one thing you lack, guys, perseverance. You've got to keep going. Easy to say, ridiculously hard to do. But you have to. For your sake and for the rest of the runners. And then benevolence. I was trying to think of a good way to one word sum this up. This care and concern for the other runners beside us. You know, malevolence is defined by, malevolence is defined by a desire to see bad happen to others. And benevolence is a desire to see good for others. And specifically in this passage, it is a gospel good. When you think about the closest friends that you have in the church, do you have a desire that they individually would grow in godliness and holiness. I said it, I think, in the first service uh, regarding something similar. Is that part of your prayer life? Um, When I examine my prayers, I find an overwhelming majority are about me. And I am convicted by that. Because when I read Paul's letters, he's always praying for other people. He's thanking God for them, and he's praying for their growth. In every letter except Galatians, because there, they're not doing very good, and so he can't thank God for their growth. Benevolence. Do you have a good desire for those around you who are running? So, 
Gospel focus, diligence, perseverance on this race as you pursue holiness, as we pursue holiness as a group. And I'm going to leave you with Titus uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, by way of benediction. For the grace of God has appeared that, other, that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and a purity for himself, a purify a people for himself, for his very own eager to do what is good. This then, these then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now, Paul's saying this initially to Titus. That goes with, for any of us. The gospel teaches us to live godly and upright lives at this present age. And it requires that we live in communion with other believers and in the midst of a world that hates Jesus Christ. And hates the gospel. And we need to live lives that honor God for their benefit as well as for obedience and to glorify God. So let's live not for ourselves, but let's live for God primarily and live for others after that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love and your mercy.